on in. Got all your stuff ready to go? We're going to see who the elect are. Because he who endures to the end will be saved. And uh, I'm, I'm up here looking at Dr. McGinnis' bi- personal Bible. And I notice uh, he's got all kinds of notes in it. So he, he really believes this stuff. <laughs> and uh, his Bible, it's a good sign too. It looks like his Bible's falling apart. And you know the saying, a person uh, that owns a Bible that's falling apart usually is falling apart themselves. So this session goes to what, 4.30? And uh, he, he's going to stop and hand, hand the mic over for Q&A whenever you're comfortable with that. So let's uh, once again uh, welcome uh, Dr. McGinnis to our lectern. Thank you for your endurance. <laughs> Three sessions in a row with me. That's, that might be a record. Unless you're a student, then you have to pay for that, <laughs> which, is, which is even worse. So, I do want to thank you. You are a special group. It's not like you don't have other things to do. And if the church of Jesus Christ was filled with people like you, we'd be in a different place. And I just want to say thank you. Because you've encouraged my heart. Hopefully I've encouraged your heart. But you have encouraged mine. Because I appreciate people wanting to know the text. And what I've heard is not just wanting to know it. But being able to take it and use it in their own lives. And in the lives of their people. That's priceless. You people are special. And I just thank you so very much for hanging in there. And studying with me. We are going to change direction. And at this point, I almost want to apologize to David Roseland for suggesting I come out here because this might be the session that says, why did you, who suggested we bring McGinnis out? (laughs) You know, we're going to take him outside and stone him with big stones. Uh, Some people ask the question, what's my book? This is the real title grabber. Contributions select rhetorical devices to a biblical theology of the Song of Songs. After writing a dissertation, I'm sorry, I was no more creative than that. I should have been, but I wasn't. But that's my work on the song. It's not a commentary. What I'm doing is a biblical theology. And what I'm trying to do is show how the author creates of theology through the rhetorical devices. And we'll touch on some of those things as we go through the lesson. The other book, When Suffering is Redemptive, this is a book I contributed to with uh, Larry Waters. Uh, Larry suffered from cluster headaches. He was a professor at Dallas. He just passed away this October, I believe. Larry heard my story as I wrote it in Kindred Spirits. Larry suffers with the worst pain known to medical science was cluster headaches. I suffer from the second worst pain. 
I always come in second. I never come in first. And it's called trigeminal neuralgia. Trigeminal neuralgia is a nerve disorder that has nerves in your face. It's the biggest um, nerve in your face. And I'll get shooting lightning bolts of pain throughout the day. And ever since 2010, there's not been more than an hour, hour and a half that I've not gotten some kind of jolt of pain. So I had to live with this chronic pain issue. I've had three brain surgeries. I've gotten to know Dr. Ben Carson. Maybe you've heard about him. Um, he and I are friends. We talked theology. We talked uh, Old Testament. And he confirmed for my people, he put in writing, that McGinnis does have something in his skull because he's seen it. So I wanted him to mention that. I also asked him, I said, Dr. Carson, I said, I've been published in theological journals. I said, I really would like to be published in a medical journal. I think that would really round out my experience. And he said, Mark, no. He said, it's usually the bad ones that get into the medical journals. You don't want to be that. But unfortunately, he could not fix me. Uh, so I still struggle with trigeminal neuralgia on uh, a daily basis. I've had a, a glycerin rhizotomy, which is a needle going into your brain trying to destroy the nerve, and that hasn't worked. So I went through the book of Job and shared what it's like to live with this disease and hopefully help people that are living with chronic pain and how to deal with it. So those two books, unfortunately, I did not bring any with me, but I think either one, if you're academic, the one on the left will definitely be a blessing, and if you know people are hurting, it's not only my story, it's Larry's story and other people's story, that are trying to walk this journey with pain and suffering and loss and honor God in the process of doing that. So if it can bless, hopefully that's a blessing to you. Because I know you so well, I'm going to do something a little different. Just lay on the floor till we sweep them away. 
What's the genre of that musical piece? It's a love song. And we all have our favorite love songs, right? What's the conflict about? Is it about not bringing flowers? You don't pay attention. So not bringing flowers, thank you, is really a metaphor, right? What's the message of the song? For us literal people, it says, yeah, I should really bring flowers home to my wife. (laughs) And for those literalists, if that's all you got, that's great. I appreciate that. What's the message? Love me. Do the things you used to do. How does it communicate its message? I mean, how? What's the method? It's a song, good, but more than that, it's a duet. Would that song have worked as a monologue? But you hear these two voices, and it communicates, doesn't it? How else does a song communicate? The tones. It's mournful, right, and how do they get the mournfulness? Strings. That's the extent of my music ability, by the way. That's all I know. How did this song affect you when you heard it? Makes you sad. What's that? Inspires you to do what? And why does it do it? Why did it do that? I'm glad you didn't have a microphone. Maybe they didn't hear that out in the world. <laughs> how does it motivate? I'm trying to save it. Trying to save it. But how did it motivate you to do the right thing? Guilt, remorse. Guilt, remorse. Fear of loss. Fear of loss. It showed you what can happen. If you neglect your marriage, someone said marriage is like a boa constrictor. Either you feed it every day or bad things can happen. And that's what happens. This is the song. The song really says what? Maintain your marriage. Now, if I were to stay up, get up, and we did a conference on marriage. And I said, attend to your marriage. You would say, yeah, okay. But if I play this song, what are you thinking about now? I've got to. 
And every single guy here, I'm sorry, ladies, I'm going to give it to them because sometimes you know guys, when you get off that plane, you're driving home, your first stop should be flowers. Hey, I missed you because we have to attain to those things. Now, this late 1970s, I know I'm dating myself. Uh, Anybody know who the couple are singing? Wow. I'm at home. You're all the same age as I am. And the younger people are looking at us older and saying, Streisand and Diamond, who are they? All right. Moment of honesty. Who doesn't know who they are? Thank you. I appreciate that. So hand your hangs up. Everybody else look around and you can explain to them, you know, at this service who those people are. It motivates indirectly by expressing the pain of a relationship left unattended. And it is so palatable that it moves the listener not to follow their example. And every time you hear the song, you say, yeah, I got to bring my wife flowers. See, this is a love song in our Bibles, the Song of Solomon or Hebrew Song of Songs that is more powerful. But this song in our Bible rarely gets sung on a Sunday morning. Now, I want you, we probably have a bunch of different translations. I want you to open your Bibles to the Song of Solomon. Now, I want you to look, you know, right under the title, right before verse 1. Does anybody's Bible have a big R on it, like you see for movies? Does it say R or M for mature audiences? Is there anything in your Bibles that says, don't preach this on a Sunday morning? But this is one book that rarely ever sees the light of day on a Sunday morning. But we're commissioned with preaching the whole counsel of God. We'd rather preach Chronicles 1 through 8. (laughs) Or go back to our lady wrestler in Deuteronomy. than than, Than have to deal with this book. You know, why do pastors not preach this book? Number one, I want to keep my job. I know I have, number two, I know I have to preach the whole counsel of God, but I should really preach through Chronicles first. Number three, my deacon and wife would kill me. Number four, I have no idea how to handle a book or a song that talks about bellies, navels, and breasts. I mean, what... How do we handle body parts? How do we handle... (laughs) You see the dilemma. We can't... And that's what happens. We're afraid. We all have body parts. But to share them from a Sunday morning pulpit... We're really afraid that that one person in our church, that nine-year-old woman is going to learn for the first time that she has breasts, then what, she'll leave the church or something. Or the teenagers may realize that girls have breasts. 
like this is the first time we're telling him this from the Word of God. But we don't let him learn it from the Word of God. How many people have ever heard a message on a Sunday morning from the Song of Solomon? Four people? Which is typical. Here's a book in the Bible, God's Word, with no caution tape on it that you had to rip off like the Jews put. You had to be 30 years old before you could read this book. And this was normally the last book they would want you to read. But it may be one of the first books we should read because sexuality in the church and the world is coming unglued. And here we have God's longest instruction to intimacy and we don't talk about it. And we wonder why there's issues in the, in the church. All right, so let's talk about... Sorry, skip that. It's tough to do a PowerPoint on the Song of Songs, and you can imagine why. <laughs> this is a Mark Chagall, uh, 1960. He was a Jewish painter, which is unusual artist. Because remember, following Torah, not having vain images... So you didn't want, as a Jewish parent, to have your kids come up to be artists. But Chagall has done a number of Bible works, even including the cross. Uh, Some of his work is in uh, France, in chapels. So let's talk about what the song is not first. The song is not about God's love for Israel or Christ's love for the church. For the Jews, this was a common allegorical interpretation The Jews, they read it like Steve told us. They saw the surface meaning and say, it must have a deeper meaning than what we're reading. So, for instance, they said they came and read about the part where the male lover is talking about the female's lover's breast. And they had two breasts. And the the Jews are saying, what do we do with two breasts? And they're saying, two, 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 two. What do we have two of? (laughs) Oh, I know. One breast is Moses and one breast is Aaron in which the church, which the Jews get their nourishment. That'll preach. (laughs) And that works. At least it has. I mean, it just can't mean breast. Well, the church, they got saved. And the church comes to this book and they're still stuck with two breasts. And they still two breasts, two breasts. What are we going to do? Well, they can't go to Moses and Aaron because that's Jewish. So they're saying two, 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 two. I know. One breast is the Old Testament and one breast is the New Testament <laughs> from which we get our nourishment. Wow, we solved that. Now we can preach the book. And remember, the church fathers are coming from Greek thought, that Platonism that says the body is bad, the spirit is good. And this elevated the physical so the church fathers reacted to it. And you know, Augustine comes from a licentious background. He wanted nothing to do with sex afterwards. So he reacts and wants to allegorize. Jerome, a great translator of the Bible, would not allow couples to receive communion after the bestial act of intercourse. He claimed that he who too ardently loves his wife is an adulterer. 
Augustine spoke of the degrading necessity of sex. Pope Gregory I claims that sexual pleasure can never be without sin. Jerome was one also who, when he had physical urges in the winter to get rid of the physical urge, he would throw himself in an icy pond. In the summer, he still had urges. What did he do? He found a thorn bush. Yeah. <laughs> I like the empathy all the guys felt at that point. <laughs> During the Middle Ages, Christian couples were encouraged to abstain from sex on Thursday out of respect for the Lord's Supper, on Friday for the crucifixion, on Saturday to honor the Virgin Mary, on Sunday for the resurrection, and on Monday in memory of the poor departed souls. That's where the phrase, thank God for Tuesday, probably, came from. We laugh, but this continued even till the Puritan times. Jonathan Edwards. There was an old wives' tale that the day your baby is born, nine months before the baby was conceived. One of Jonathan Edwards' kids had the unfortunate timing to be born on a Sunday. So his whole church, quote-unquote, looked at him askewed after that, saying, what were you doing on Sunday afternoon? <laughs> really? But see, the church has not been the best keeper on the attitudes of sex. And it's continued on. So we can't allegorize, and I don't think that is an issue, although it does make the book a little bit easier to handle. The song is not a narrative. And that's where many of us might have learned this book. It's not a narrative that traces the love between Solomon and a country last named the Shulamite. One can't outline the song based on courtship, marriage, and happily ever after. The text will not sustain such a reading. And let me show you to in chapter 1, verse 2. She says, and this is a female lover speaking, May he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. And we read that and say, oh, that's nice. They love each other. This is courtship. Let me give you a little bit clearer definition of the Hebrew here. May he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love caresses or lovemaking is better than wine. All right, we have a problem with this courtship. Why? May he kiss me with kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. This girl's experienced two things, and she likes them both. <laughs> wine and lovemaking. And she wants more. And I talked to my daughter, dear, this is not how you do courtship or dating. You can't use this verse. But see, there's too much intimacy into the section before chapter 3 where we get to a wedding. That's why the song cannot sustain this kind of reading. Some have surmised that it's a narrative of two male lovers, one being Solomon and the other a rustic shepherd who vies for the affection of the pretty Shulamite whose heart really belongs to the lowly shepherd and not to the fabulous wealthy king. That works in Hollywood, that the little guy wins the romantic comedy. 
It doesn't work in the text. Matter of fact, Solomon is mentioned in the text only as an adjective, and he's made fun of in chapter 8. Look at it with me. It starts off, she's speaking again in chapter 8, verse 11. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal-Haman. Baal-Haman did not exist. Baal means master. Haman is many. This is Solomon had a vineyard whose master of many. He entrusted the vineyard to caretakers, i.e. his eunuchs. Each one was to bring a thousand shekels of silver for its fruit, what his harem was probably worth. But she says... My own vineyard is at my disposal. Yeah, 2,000 shekels for you, Solomon, and 200 for those who take care of it, but it's my body, and I give it to only one. And most commentaries recognize that Solomon's made in fun here. So he cannot be the male lover. What we have, the song song is a love song between a couple who revel in their strong love for each other. Through the use of intimate dialogue, this couple shares their desire to be together when separated and passionately enjoy each other when they are together. This is an artistic creation. The couple in the song are fictional characters. It's like Proverbs. It's like a parable. And there's a reason why they're not named. They're not named so that you and I can associate with the book, because the way the book motivates is when you read this book, if you're married, you say, I want this kind of relationship. This is in the Hebrew, this is hot. This is what every relationship should look like. See, what it does is it doesn't tell you, there's no command in this book to do anything, but it sets up such a great example this great relationship between this couple that anyone who's looking at it says, I want that. I mean, your weather down here in Houston has been pretty nice for me coming down here because I've been living in the 20s, 15s, 18s, snow and just miserable. And even now it's only 45. I'm going to cry on the way home tomorrow. But here, I'm going to give you a picture of two empty chairs on a beach, an umbrella, calm water, two drinks with the umbrellas in it, but they're non-alcoholic, so they're okay for us. <laughs> but the chairs are empty. You see that on TV, and what do you say in your heart? I wish I was there. And that's how the song motivates. I wish I was one of them. And then how can we get that kind of... Of relationship. Now it's interesting, this is not a narrative that traces the historical couple. This is based on the first word of the book, a what? A song. So if it's based on a song, we're not expecting a linear progression. Generally, songs don't work that way. There's some ballads that do, but this is not. This song is going to function a little differently than our ballads. Now, unfortunately, there's not many songs in the Old Testament. And there's none like this in the Old Testament. So there's nothing that we can compare it to. 
While the garden motif reminds the reader of the Garden of Eden, this garden is post-fall and has obstacles the cup must overcome. It's fascinating that Solomon, and I believe Solomon is the writer, although not a character. And that's going to create questions that we'll get to in a few minutes of how can he write the book. However, we can at least say at this point that what is happening here is this lush garden. It almost makes us think about Eden. It puts it back and say almost a perfect relationship, except there are obstacles that must be overcome. For this couple, longing is only satisfied in the presence of the other. When absent from each other, they yearn for one another and their desire drives them over every obstacle to be one. Now, I don't want you to raise your hand, don't want you to nod, but here we are, we have my session, we have dinner, then we have Steve's session. People are going to be thinking about going home to your wife or to your husband. Aren't you starting to count the minutes? Hey, I've got to make my plane reservation. I want to get home. I like you, Mark, but no, <laughs> my wife, much better. And that's the way it should be. Absence, and you should fight to be together. And that's what the book is trying to communicate. The movement of the book from her first voice longing to her final wish is achieved by this progression from absence to presence. That's the main theme. If you remember nothing else, remember this motif, absence to presence. The couple is always fighting against absence and always rejoicing in one another's presence. No good comes from absence except the desire to be present with one another. And it's the idea is to stay in wanting one another. A few years ago, a wife fell off a cruise ship. It took the husband 12 hours to repeat, report his wife lost. 12 hours. Now, my dad's been on a number of cruises, and I asked him, I said, Dad, how long would you miss mom? Just curious. I said, would you wait till the end of the cruise when you're going, you know, taking the luggage off and you're looking for mom to help carry it? You know, when do you miss her? And he says, I think after an hour and a half or two, I'd miss her. Oh, okay, at least you would miss her. Would you miss your husband after 12 hours? Or would you say, this is great. (laughs) He's not coming back? See, you're not fighting against absence. What the book is, this couple has a good relationship and they're constantly fighting against absence. Because what the book doesn't say and what we experience in life is nothing in life naturally draws us together as a couple. There's forces that always try to drive us apart. They pull us this way, they pull us this way. And if you were to just say, wait to get together again, when will you be? I had a good friend. Um, started in second grade. We knew each other through second grade, through high school. We went to different colleges, but they were only an hour and a half apart, so we saw each other a lot. I was his best man. He was my best man. He was a computer guy. His wife was into sales, retail sales, so she ended up working nights. He worked days. They made good money, had the nice house. And he said, Mark, as soon as we're ready to slow down, we'll be together. We just have to wait a little bit longer. I said, you sure about that? He said, yep, it's going to happen. 
Two years after that conversation, he took me out to lunch and told me he had a brain tumor. He was dead within a year. Unbeliever at that. I sat with his wife after I did the funeral. And she grabbed me by the arm, sat me down next to Joy and said, we always thought we'd have more time. We always thought that life would draw us back together again. And folks, I'm telling you, nothing in life is going to draw you together again. This couple, as you'll see in the book, they have to fight to be together. And we have to do the same thing. There's not characters in the song. I like to say that they're voices. And the reason I say they're voices is because character leads one to believe that it's a narrative. And also, we don't, all we do is hear them. This is a book that is a dialogue between the couple. And even though they're not real character voices, we know they feel real because they speak, they feel, they hear, they taste, and smell. Matter of fact, all the senses are used in this book. And I believe it's used, and that's on purpose. So they explain to us that God understands that love is a full sense experience. So I would suggest that there's four voices in the song. There is the female beloved. She speaks most of the time. Now, I don't want guys to say, yep, that figures. She does speak most of the time. (laughs) She speaks 65% of the time, and that's true for other ancient Near East literature outside of Israel, that the woman speaks most of the time. However, outside of Israel, the ancient Near East love literature is not true dialogue like we have in the song. The song is unique. So someone that wants to argue, is there borrowing? There might be the same motifs, just because we're talking about love. There's only so many different ways you can talk about love. It's not true dialogue. Many times in Egypt, Mesopotamia, they're monologues. The the song is heard from her perspective. She is the dominant voice. She reveals herself in the use of I all but two times. The male never uses the I. There's only two times that the first person is used, and it's not her. Now, the male beloved, his speech is in response to the woman's words of her physical beauty, her actions, or her invitation. He uses it two times. However, they do not reveal himself or his thoughts, but only as he interacts with the woman, which I find fascinating. The daughters of Jerusalem are the third voice. These are only addressed by the female beloved and never initiate conversation with the male beloved. They function as a device for the poet to expose the inner thoughts of the woman when the man is absent. See, how does the woman communicate to the reader or listener her heart? Well, she has her friends, the daughters of Jerusalem. But for those of you who know Hebrew, it's fascinating when she talks to the daughters of Jerusalem in the adjuration refrains, she says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem. If you look at the yous, plural, they're masculine plural, not feminine plural. And you'd have to say, why? That's unusual. She's talking to daughters. Why is it changed to a masculine plural? And the reason is because the daughters stand in for the audience, which is going to be male and female. 
And Hebrew always defaults to the male gender. But it shows you that by seeing this suffix, ah, the daughters of Jerusalem are standing for any of the single people and for the audience that she's talking to. Then you have the narrator's voice heard in chapter 5, verse 1. Let's look at that. This is why I say you have to understand the narrator. When we talk about narrative, you have to believe him. Now, we're going to jump into a racy scene here. Chapter 4 begins the conversation. He talks to her, your lips, my bride, drip honey. Honey and milk are under your tongue. Now, you have to stop and ask yourself the question. Your lips, my bride, drip honey. Honey and milk are under your tongue. How does he know what's under her tongue? Does he say, hey, dear, come over here. Open your mouth. Let me see. (laughs) No. How did he know milk and honey are under her tongue? You say French kissing. It's Jewish kissing well before the French ever figured this out. (laughs) It's just a misnomer. Okay, But you're right. He is deep kissing her, and the reason he knows is because his tongue is in her mouth. Say, oh, Mark, is this maybe we should end sooner? (laughs) The fragrance, but she's still clothed. Look at the fragrance of your garments is like fragrance of Lebanon. Oh, chapter four. I'm sorry. I'm chapter four, verse 11. I'm going to get to five one is what I'm working towards. See, I'm getting excited now because I'm in the... (laughs) A rock garden is my sister, my bride, or sister bride is a better translation. Now we say, wait a minute, Mark, sister bride, there, no, this is just weird. But what happened, you have to understand that back this time, sister was a term of endearment for his wife. And you say, that's weird. I know, I wish I could explain it better than that, but it's a term of endearment. And that's how they talk to one another. And it says, a rock garden locked, a spring sealed up. Now, many see this. This is her virginity. She's a virgin here. But I would suggest that a rock garden is not just virginity. It's mean that she's locked to anyone else. And she has the key to unlock it and open to who she wants. Verse 13, your shoots. Now, this is the man speaking to the female. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates. Now, let me ask, answer the question that's going to get asked after this. What's her shoots? You could become famous if you figured it out. Okay? Now, guys, what I would suggest you do is take the Song of Songs and go home and say, wife, we're going to do a Bible study together. Because there's a metaphor in verse 13 that I want to find out what that part of your body is. Get your BDB out. I think it says groove in BDB. And we're going to look for this. See, guys that say they don't like Bible study, I'm just not sure what the problem is. They're not studying the right (laughs) books. But look at your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates, choice fruits, henna with nard, nard and saffron. Do you know how expensive saffron still is today? Do you know how expensive it was back then? I mean, we're talking hundreds and hundreds of dollars. Nards, calamus, cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, along with spice 
finest spices. We know this can't be true because he's telling it this is what she's like. And what is he saying? You are a garden of delight, which makes perfect sense. You are not only a garden of light, you are a garden spring, a well of fresh water, streams flowing from Lebanon. means refreshing. Then she speaks in verse 16, Awake, O north, talking about the wind, come, wind of the south, make my garden breathe out its fragrance. Let its spices be wafted abroad. Now, what she's saying is she wants the wind to come across her body that he just said is a garden. And what she wants to do is let the wind come across her body, pick up her fragrance and take it to her lover, which is not very far away. And he smells that and brings it to her. Is this true today? I mean, women, do we, why do women wear cologne? Ladies, come on, help us. Yeah, for guys. Yep. Because we wear perfume, you walk through a room, and if you're not attached, you walk through a room, you have cologne, and someone says, ooh. He might not have seen you, but now he smells it. Well, this is nice. What is this? And all of a sudden, he's following because it attracts attention. And it's interesting, smell is one of those things combined with sex that creates one of the biggest memories in our brains. Maybe God knew that when he talked about these things. But he continues on. Now look at the offering. May my beloved come into his garden. Now before she just called herself, it was her garden. She was the garden. Now she's offering the invitation. Come into my gar- his garden and do what? Eat its choice fruits. Now this is where we want to stay away from this on Sunday morning. Okay, who's going to unpack this metaphor? Okay, Driscoll and MacArthur got into it because Driscoll probably went too far unpacking the metaphors and even the metaphors he unpacked, he didn't do well or correctly. MacArthur said we should not unpack the metaphors in the song. And he said, if you want to know how I handled the song, go look in my study Bible, and I did. He wasn't a help. He commented on three verses in chapter 7, which is the most erotic chapter. And I went there to look. It wasn't a help. And it's interesting that he will talk about the metaphors in Psalms and unpack them, but not unpack them in the song. Now, I know our audience, we have to be careful. But that's the beauty of the song. Because if I just say, may my beloved come into his garden and eat his choice fruits, and all of those who are married say, I know what he's talking about. Please, Mark, don't go any farther. We all know what you're talking about. And do I have to explain anymore? But to the uninitiated, if you have a 13-year-old boy, what's he thinking? What's he talking about? (laughs) Mom, Dad, what does it mean to eat choice fruits? See, that's where you get in trouble because now they're going to be in therapy and it's going to be your fault because you brought it up. (laughs) And parents don't want to answer that question over lunch on Sunday afternoon. But see, we should answer that question, but within the home. See, this is a song that both conceals to the uninitiated and reveals to those who already have experience in love. But then it goes on. We're going to get to the narrator's voice. And he says, the male lover, I have come into my garden. Notice, it goes from his garden, from her garden first in 16 verse uh, line C, 
my garden to his garden, now to my garden, masculine. I've come into my garden, my sister bride. I've gathered my myrrh along with my balsam. I've eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I've drunk my wine and my milk. So what is that saying to us from the guy's perspective? He's what? He's taking it all. There's not one morsel he's leaving on the table. Keeping with the, the metaphor of eating. Then all of a sudden, these last two lines of verse 1. The lovers somewhat are in the midst of this meal. And it says this, and command. Eat, friends, plural. Drink and abide deeply, O lovers. What? Who is that voice? Well, some suggest it's the daughters of Jerusalem. Well, I got news for you. That's kind of odd now. Because this couple is enjoying this meal. It's only supposed to be an intimate meal between the two of them. And all of a sudden, the daughters say, we see what you're doing. Yeah, go ahead and enjoy it. Um, That's just weird. Who else could it be? There's no other voices in the song. This is the narrator, and the narrator stands in for God. Now you say, Mark, but it doesn't say God. Yes, you're right, it doesn't say God. And there's a reason God's name is not used in the song. If we go around Solomon's time, what was one of the major aspects of pagan religion? Sex. They connected to God through sex. They went to the temple, had sex to act out fertility. God, not wanting his people to confuse sex and worship, leaves his name out of the book on purpose so that we would not confuse the two. But I see on the fringes, people are starting to confuse this. Rob Bell is one who's confusing this. Others, even conservative people, are starting to get the misunderstand that with all things that we do, let's worship God. And somebody would suggest and came to our chapel and said, oh, I just built a new house. Come into my worship center. It's my bedroom. That's problematic. And that's not what the New Testament means and do all things and glorify me. So God leaves his name out of the book, but this is the narrator. This is the strongest comment, I believe, in all of the, new, all of the Bible that says God puts his stamp on sexual intimacy and the pleasure of it. Corinthians, it just says, hey, have your wife, have your husband, be happy. <laughs> you know, this says, hey, eat and drink. And matter of fact, get drunk in the love of each other. This is the strongest statement. And folks, we have to understand this book. I've done too much counseling that people in our churches do not have a good understanding of sex from God's point of view. I, my wife and I were counseling a couple, and she looked at me across the couch and said, Mark, you cannot convince me that God wants me to enjoy sex. And I said, you do know what book I studied, don't you? Well, show me. And I showed her this verse. And she was convicted right away and said, okay, God wants, us, God wants women, but it doesn't say me. See, there was issues. Another guy came to me and said, Mark, would you mind doing our premarital counseling? Just the sex part. And I said, okay. 
I said, okay. I said, can I ask why? He said, yeah, my pastor did our premarital counseling, but when it came to sex, he was so uncomfortable that I think he missed some things. And he did. He didn't even use the anatomical names for body parts. I use female genitalia, clitoris and penis. He had never heard the female genitalia term before in his life. This is a 21-year-old boy in this day and age with the Internet. If we are not going to tell them and help them understand, who will? Well, they'll learn it from Hollywood, they'll learn it from movies, and they'll use it from the Internet. Those are bad teachers. And they're all done in secret. And it never brings the conversation out. And here we have a book that helps us do it. So the narrator's voice is here. So through this highly charged sexual imagery that's clothed in Hebrew poetry, this fictitious couple invites every couple who's wise. Remember, this is wisdom literature written by Solomon to enjoy their own celebration at the proper time and encourage singles to not arouse this dangerous emotion until the proper time. See, this book is for singles because it recognizes the feelings and the emotions that they're having. Girls are saying before they're married, I, I want this. And you should say, yes, you want this. You should look forward to it. Just don't act now. But what are we saying? No, sex is dirty, dirty, dirty. No, no, no. Don't think about it. Well, the problem with that is they're already thinking about it. And it's God-given. Somebody went to Josh McDowell and said, Josh, I'm just struggling with sexual temptation, and I pray God to take away all my sexual desire. And Josh McDowell said, no, don't pray that. Because <laughs> that's what drives us to be with someone. It's not good to man to be alone. And part of that is the sexual nature of who we are. And this is what's helping uh, the song helps answer that question. Now, the question becomes, okay, if the song is not courtship, wedding, marriage, then how does the song move? And this is how the song moves. I would suggest there's movements. Like an orchestra, a symphony, there's movements of the song. And I suggest that there's seven. Might be six, but I'm going to go with seven. And I've been living here for a while. I used to call these cycles because they repeat themselves. They're movements. There's seven of them. And they move along these themes. Separation, desire, obstacle union. And then there's a transition back to recreate it all over again. This is how the song moves from beginning to end. The one question I cannot answer is, why is there seven? I don't know why there's seven. I can't find an answer. You know, I know we have, yeah, that's the complete number. I just don't know if that's the best explanation at this point. I'm just glad God ended the song because we know that there's an, an ending there. But remember this idea of absence and presence. So if you look back at chapter 1, verse 1, I want to show you an interesting dynamic. The female lover May he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. When she talks about him in the third person, he's not there. And that makes sense. Guys, if you're 
wife is not with you and she's home talking about you, she'll say, he is in Houston. Jeff's not here. He's in Houston. That's third person because you're not there. But notice the change from line A to line B. Your love is better than wine. What happened here? He showed up. And because they're not real, what the, author, what the author did, what the female lover is doing, is taking him from third person to second person and putting him on our mental stage by just the change of the pronouns. Because when you're in the room, your wife talks to you as you. She doesn't talk to you as he. And if she does, then you know you have problems and you better go see someone for counseling. But here it's you. Now, this has caused some Jewish scholars issues because they don't like the switch in persons so without any textual evidence they'll change the you in that line b back to his just simply because it doesn't fit but really this is and bollinger points this out this is called enlage e-n-l-l-a-g-e it's when the switch switch of person is on purpose And what happens is, this is how she gets them separated and together so they can have their communication. So the book begins with separation. What I want to show you is something really fascinating with this book is turn to the end of the book. Because notice, it'll follow this theme, separation, desire, obstacle, union. It'll follow this all the way through, through the sixth movement. However, look what happens in the seventh movement. Separation is the end. The transition comes back. So if we look at chapter 8, verse 5, who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? That starts the seventh movement, and we notice here they're together. And we say, that's odd. Well, it is odd to start the section. But if we go to the end and we look at verses 13 and 14, the man says, O you who sit in the gardens, my companions or companions are listening for your voice. Let me hear it. And she says, hurry, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountain of spices. Notice they're separated and she's calling him back and he wants to hear her voice. This is something that's been stated already in chapter 2. So they repeat the motif. And we have this idea, the book starts with separation and it ends with separation. They say, what's the significance of that? This is the song that never ends. And in marriage, it's not supposed to end. Why? We're constantly going through these cycles of separation. So the book begins with separation and ends with separation and shows us that we're living in between. And we always have to fight against this separation because nothing will naturally draw us together. The only satisfaction this couple in the song does not have is when they don't get enough of each other. Look at chapter 2. She starts off in chapter 2. I am the rose of Sharon, the lily of valley. And I'm sorry, this is not Jesus. This is the female lover, and I'll show you why it's not Jesus in a minute. 
She says, I'm the Rose of Sharon. And we can some confusion of what this means. This Rose of Sharon, really, she's saying, I'm a crocus. I am a simple flower among all the flowers on the plains of Sharon. I'm just a simple lily of the valley. What she's saying is, I'm nobody. I have no special beauty. I'm just me. And what does he say in verse 2? Like a lily uses the same words, word, among the thorns, so is my darling among the maidens. Ah, this is a great line. She uses humor to make fun of herself. Not that you women ever do that. And he takes that humor and says, yeah, you are a lily, but all those other women, they're thorns. They have no petals. They're nothing good to look at. And inside she goes, oh, now that's not in the text. I'm just filling in (laughs) the white space. But notice she keeps the metaphor because she's still talking and she calls him. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. Hey, all those guys, they're like pine trees. Trees of the forest. My husband, he's a fruit tree. You're laughing before we get to the next verse. In his shade, I took great delight and sat down and his fruit was sweet to my taste. If this is courtship, we have an issue. Everyone recognizes there's intimacy going on of some sort. And for those who are initiated or understand, we're saying, is he really doing what I think? Is she really doing what I think she's doing? You can ask, we'll see which one asked that question when we come to question answer time. (laughs) Verse 4, he has brought me into his bank, he brought me to a banquet hall and his banner over me is love. Okay, how many sung this in Sunday school? His banner over me is love. You will never let your little daughter sing this again. His banner over me is love. Either that means identification or it could mean military conquest. Flag down on her. She's mine. And she's allowed herself to be conquered. So your kids are not going to sing this anymore. Your daughter will come up, mine's bad. No, it's not. No, it's, let's not go there. And what does she respond? Sustain with raisin cakes, refresh me with apples because I am lovesick. She's not sick of him. She has this lovesickness that's only going to be cured by more love. And what she's asking for here is raisin cakes or apples. This is the food of love. This is to give her energy so that she can go on loving her beloved. You say, Mark, how do we know that? Well, look at the next verse. Let his left hand be under my head and his right hand embrace me. I don't know anyone. I guess I could do it with Dave, but I won't embarrass him. You know, I could bring David up here and say, oh, let me hug him. And that's what we think of. But what does it say? Let his left hand be what? Under my head. Well, what position are they, are, are they in if the left hand is under her head? They have to be prone, right? 
Okay, and the next words, okay, they put him in a prone position. Then it says, let his right hand embrace me. Well, that's an awkward hug. But is embrace the best word? Our English translators, a little modesty here. It's actually, may he caress me. And if that left hand is under her head and the right hand is free to roam, <laughs> ladies, you can fill in the blank where it's going. And that's exact. See, the song is meant to say, yeah, this is what I want in my relationship. Now, if you're not married, you're saying, whoa, this is getting a little hot. I don't understand exactly what's going on. But what happens? And that's why she moves to verse 7. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the hinds of the field, that you will not arouse or awaken love until she pleases. So all of a sudden, the brakes get put on, and she makes, the female speaking here, said, daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or hinds, don't arouse love. Don't do anything that will make this even greater and don't act on this. Why? Until the proper time, until love pleases, which is the proper time. Which is for the Jew was within marriage. Now, some scholars would say that this couple is not married. Well, that's problematic because we have antecedent theology that says if a couple was acting like this and they were caught... If she was engaged, he was engaged, they would have to be stoned. If they're caught like this and are not, they would have to marry. So here the adoration is, is don't go far. Now it says, by the gazelles or the hinds of the field. Why those animals? We're not sure. Some suggest that a shortened form of Yahweh. We're not quite sure. I don't buy that. I think it's a metaphor. Now you say gazelles or hinds of the field. Why? It could be that what he's suggesting, and I've seen this in Job, that the animals in Job 38 to 42, they know the proper time to mate. And maybe he says, because those animals know by instinct when to mate, you know as well by the law. So that's my best explanation for why he uses uh, those animals at this point. So we have this concept, this is a theme of separation, desire, obstacle. There's always an obstacle. And if we keep reading in chapter 2, which starts a new section, chapter 2, verse 8. Listen, my beloved, behold, he is coming. So they're separated, right? We can go back. Behold, he is coming, climbing on the mountains, leaping on the hills. Notice they're plural. He's climbing on the mountain, leaping on the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, he is standing behind our wall. He's looking through the lattice, looking through the window, sorry. He's peering through the lattice. This guy, in just one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight lines, has gone from climbing over mountains to climbing over hills to now being at a doorstep. Wow. Behold, he's coming, climbing on the mountains, leaping us in the hills. If you had to put this to a superhero, who would it be? Superman, thank you. Faster than a speeding bullet. And what is this showing? I can't wait to be with you. And she takes the fastest animal, the one that doesn't let any heights get in the way because a gazelle and a stag can take any mountain in Israel. They climb over it. And boom, here I am. And then we move to, oh, desire. 
My beloved responded and said to me, and look, here's the invitation. Now, it's interesting here. He's, he's saying these things, but we're getting it from her lips, not his lips directly. Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come along. Behold, the winter is past. The rain is over and gone. Flowers have already appeared in the land. Time has arrived for pruning of the vines. The voice of the turtle dove has been heard in our land. The fig tree has ripened its figs. The vines and blossoms have given forth their fragrance. Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come along. Well, what's he saying in all those verses? It's springtime. This is for all of us who like to preach expositorily. There's not a lot here except it's springtime. And I want you with me. And for any of us that work on college campuses, you see what happens in the fall. People come to campus, girls and guys that come to campus, you don't see a lot of holding hands because they have girlfriends back home. All of a sudden, when winter is over and we come to springtime, <laughs> what do we see on campus? Holding hands. You know, in springtime, a man's fancy turns to what? Baseball and love. Baseball and love. And what does he say? He continues desire. Oh, my dove. They're, oh, my Yona. This is why I don't necessarily take Yona's name as silly and keep that metaphor throughout. Because he calls her dove here. In the cleft of the rock, in the secret path, place of the sea pathway, let me see your form, let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your form is lovely. Here's a chiasm between these last four lines. Form and form begin and end the chiasm. Voices are in between, which shows that he's putting the weight on her voice. Because really what he's saying, and most commentaries agree, let me see your form. He's not just saying, let me see you. He's saying, let me see your form, which I would suggest, and commentaries agree, he wants to see her naked. Outside? Well, remember, it's Israel, not a lot of people. It's not like Houston. You know, so it's a little bit safer uh, than that. So that's his desire. But now we move to, she says, catch the foxes for us. The little foxes that are ruining the vineyards while our vineyards are in blossom. Say, what? (laughs) I just said I want to see you naked. Now you said there's problems in our relationship, which is typical even in 21st century America relationships. Okay. I'm thinking about sex, and you're saying, no, there's problems that we have to deal with. See, the foxes here and vineyards are important metaphors. The vineyard here is what they're saying is the vineyard can be sometimes a regular vineyard. Sometimes it could be her body. Other times vineyards is other women. Here it's going to be their relationship. So the metaphor goes back and forth. The foxes here are things that would cause problems with the grapes. And notice it says, catch the foxes for us. So there's more than one. And little foxes. So they're not big problems yet. They're little problems. But they still have to be caught because what she say? While our vineyard, our relationship are in blossom. Hey, we're going okay, but there's these little foxes that threaten us. And then she comes back and says union. And she says this great statement. My beloved is mine, I am his. Commitment. He pastures. Now, this is, there's some issue here. He pastures his flocks among the lilies. I don't know how many of you are shepherds, but shepherds don't pasture their flock among lilies. 
they need grass. Some suggest that flock is inserted, and it is. There's no Hebrew word here, but because it's a transitive verb, it normally has to take a direct object. But I would suggest he pastures might be better. He feeds among the lilies. And what that means, the lilies are her lips. And this fits very well back to chapter 1, verse 2, where he says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. She always desires his kisses, and it always comes back into the book. And I think what she's saying here, he's kissing me. And how long do you want this to continue on? Till the cool of the day when the shadows flee away. Turn, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountain of cleavage. Now, they decided to just go with the transliteration, Bether. But the definition is cleavage. See, now you get a ge- geographic metaphor that her body becomes geography. And she wants him to explore it like a gazelle. Now, these are not the compliments we would use today. So, guys, if you're looking for terms, you know, your hair is like a flock of goats coming down from Carmel, you know, she'll never let you come to the conference again. Okay? So, we have to understand the culturalness of the song. But we do know what they're saying to each other is, I want you. And they're only happy with one another. So this is how the song moves. I'm sorry. Questions, comments? I need to go home. (laughs) Steve, I'm sorry. I think we're going to lose some people. are going to try to change their flights. (laughs) But you you make an excellent point. That's exactly what the song is meant to motivate. You nailed it. I noticed that of all the afternoon sessions we've had at this conference, I think this was the one where people's minds weren't wandering at all. (laughs) Maybe they were wandering a little bit. Generally, I don't have people fall asleep during the song. Uh, Thank you for the presentation. the only thing I have to ask is concerning the, the actual author, uh, the, not the authenticity, but the authorship of the Song of Solomon. Have you heard that Solomon is not the author, but possibly written to Solomon? Yes. And your thoughts on that? The difficulty is, is the first verse, okay? And you have the Lamed preposition before Shalomo. Li Shalomo. And some, some want to say, well, and we all understand, the Hebrew preposition has a wide range of uses. However, Walkie and O'Connor mentioned that when it's attached to a name, like an introduction to the book, it's a Lamed of Octotaurus, a Lamed of authorship. And if you go through the Psalms of David that we recognize are David, it has a Lamed before David. If we accept that authorship, we should not be questioning this authorship. This is not dedicated to Solomon. For, this is Solomon, plus it is in the tradition of the wisdom literature. What we have a problem with, and I didn't have time to go through, is how could a guy with a thousand women write this book? And I'll give him my answer really in one sentence. He wrote 
better than he lived. And he got to his life and he realized this is not what God wants. And he writes a book that tells us, don't do what I did. Enjoy life with one. That's why he's made fun of in chapter 8. He makes fun of himself. Yes, I can buy women, but I don't have one woman. So you can have a thousand women, but you'll never have one. And that's what God is trying to communicate in the song. Um, what do you think of this question um, using this terminology, what you just read of the love scene, and applying that romantically, passionately to Jesus himself? Yes. You know, and talking to Jesus like, like you would with a lover yes. on fire. Yes, and that's been done. Teresa of Avila, mm-hmm. I forget exactly what century, 14th century. She used this love language to make the lover Jesus because this, this desire for her Savior communicated for her. Bernard of Clairvoy, he wrote 82 sermons from chapter 1 to chapter 3, verse 1. 82, all dedicated to desire. The difficulty is, although the song is a book of desire, it doesn't go to Jesus. There's no way you can read Jesus into this. Yeah, and that's just it. You can go, that's exact. Now you're going to get to an allegorical reading. And that's what people have done through the centuries with that. But why is it in church communities, in, among single women that have been around, they don't like going into that department. They always rebuke me on that. Rebuke on the, the spiritual reading of it? No, rebuking on... You know, when I'm describing um, a romantic, like a lover relationship with the Spirit of God in His presence, it's more among single women and men, it's more looked of a negative thing. Like, don't talk about it. And the reason is, is because you're confused. When you get into romance, you have to bring in sex. And when you bring in romance and feelings of sex, now you're going into pagan religions. And that's how the pagans did it. There's a ton of stuff out now with uh, women's ministries, you know, contemporary women's ministry material, and I and the songs that are coming out, and they're doing this. They're eroticizing yep. uh, our relationship relationship with the Lord's becoming very eroticized. So, do you have any thoughts on that? See, as soon as we get away from a literal, historical, contextual reading of the text, we can do anything we want. And unfortunately, I know we want to love Jesus, but we don't want to use this language because it can't, if you want to use the language, okay, let's look at each verse then. And although I disagree with Mark Driscoll, he did say, okay, if you use this language for females, now you're going to make every male in your church feel all we awkward. Because if Jesus is the male lover, I'm the female lover, and he's putting his hand up my shirt is what Driscoll said, all your males are feeling awkward. So it has to be able to go both ways if it's going to be legitimate. And that's why you're getting pushback. To this point, it's just that that sells. That's what Teresa Avila is doing. 
it sells because it communicates so clearly. That's why they went to this book. This book was the most commented on book during the Middle Ages. Um, two micro questions. Did... <laughs> Did John Donne write on the Song of Solomon... And number two, did John Donne go too far in his poetry uh, as we're talking? The eulogy to his mistress lying on the bed was really to his wife. And it's racy, to be sure. I don't know if he wrote the song. I, I, don't, I didn't find anything on his view of the song. But the one poem I did read was in line with the song. Yeah, the flea and those type of things. And I think if you just take it to his mistress, it's awkward. You say, oh, wait a minute. But he's really, he was talking to his wife. Who's done the best work on this as far as a commentary? And feel free to throw your own name in there. Like if you had to, you know, I've never taught through this in my local church. Um, You know, I'd be intimidated to do it for all the reasons you've articulated. But if I really wanted to, you know, teach the whole counsel of God's word, you're going to have to deal with this at some point. So sure. what, what are the top three commentaries okay. you'd recommend? Appreciate it. Normally what pastors do at that point, they call me up and say, would you come to our church? <laughs> <laughs> I've, got, I've got my business card right yeah, here. Right. <laughs> but I will tell you, we d- they asked me to come to a church plant. They were running about 100 and they advertised heavily that I was going to do this, a billboard, everything. And their billboard was, God loves sex. So whatever you want to do with that, that's what they did. At that day when they did it, they had the newspaper, the TV there, and 225 people. And I preached. And we went, I'm embarrassed to say, we went for an hour and 25 minutes because we took questions and answer after the service. And not one person moved. And also, after the service, they told me the crowd stayed each week and their offerings doubled. So who knew that this is a way to increase church giving is preaching on the song. I would suggest the number one commentary probably, in my view, is Cheryl Exum, E-X-U-M. I think it's in the um, Anchor series. Uh, one of the newer commentators. She is feminist. Okay, so she has a cha- he has a problem with chapter five, verse uh, going through verse two and the uh, dream sequence there, on how the woman is treated. But she reads the text closely. So if you have the text in one hand and reading her, I think you'll benefit from her. Very good. Hess is another one in the Baker commentary series, who's good. He gets off sometimes. He doesn't read the text as closely looking at some literary devices as Exum does. And then his application moves to sometimes Jesus. Longman, the same way. He does some good introductory stuff uh, for the song, but his Reformed theology comes out in its application. My book is not a commentary per se. That's something I should do. It's just getting time to do something. that I'd love to be able to have a project like that to be able to, to write on the song as a commentary Um, Mark uh, is the chart you put up on the overhead is that a part of the notes that we can download I think so it was in the PowerPoint that I gave good okay uh, and then secondly I've heard a couple you know as you mentioned a few different interpretations of this whole thing but almost everyone ends 
with Solomon in despair. And you even kind of indicated that, that this is something he did not have. Right. And because of that, some people have seen that as a motivation for Ecclesiastes. I don't know how all these books fit together. Some suggest, you know, Solomon wrote, you know, Proverbs when he was a young man, full of wisdom, Song of Songs when he first married, and Ecclesiastes when he looks back over his life. The difficulty with that is all conjecture, right? And plus, I don't think, and at this point, I think Solomon, when he wrote Solomon, already had his thousand wives because of the Bahaman uh, reference. Right. And notice, Solomon, after... The kingdom divides. The only thing he's known for is multiplying women. Even down through Ezra and Nehemiah's time. Ezra and Nehemiah warned the people, don't be like Solomon. Because what did those women do? See, some people want to say, well, Solomon had these political lines. He's had to marry these women. No, if you look at kings, it's clear he loved these women. And these women turned his heart. And that's why his reputation is such that he turned away from God. Yes. Yeah, you, I think you just answered the question. I've heard people say that even though he had a thousand wives, that he may not have had any relationship with him. He didn't seem to have very many children. Uh, maybe they just weren't recorded. Yeah, I forget. Is it First King? It might be First Kings six. If someone wants to look it up, I believe it says Solomon held fast to these and loved the women. I think the words "ahav" they loved. Hmm. And the idea to have a marriage without consummation would never have happened. Because that's why he had eunuchs, because he did have sex with these. And once he had sex, no one else could. So they had to go into the harem. So um, in the commentary question, I just want to follow up real quick. Um, having looked through available commentaries, I'm always looking for the outline. Sure. When the, you know, all the different approaches, the narrative approach, the, the play, all that. Um, do you know of anyone else that has the outline the way you've presented it? Because that... That, to me, is the most important thing in a commentary to understand the structure of a book is how they outline it. No, I don't think so. So you've got the outline. I think, yeah, at least I have the outline in my book, yes. I don't walk through the outline. Uh, Dumbrill, in his Old Testament theology, comes close. I don't think he had s- seven of them, and I don't, he was missing the obstacles in, the, uh, in his outline. But Hess, Longman, Exum, I don't, they, don't have, they don't follow mine. Uh, Exum follows based on long and short speeches, which is, as a pastor, I'm saying, really, that's the best you can do? Long speech, short speech. Thank you. I thought that was a really great session, so let's give Dr. McGinnis a hand. Thank you. You know, we're, <clears throat> we're all hung up on sexuality issues, you know, in the church, and here we've got a blueprint. Uh, in this book. So that's just wonderful. Let's see, Robbie, do you have any concluding comments? I think we're going to reconvene tonight at 730, right? All right. So have a great dinner and we'll see you.